0: everyone, welcome to this episode of the New Voices Podcast, where I am recording today, December 21st, from the suburbs of Washington, D.C. My name is Ray Zong. I'm a D.C. chapter member, think tanker, and your host for today's episode. Our guest today is Liza Lin, who is a technology reporter at the Wall Street Journal based in Singapore, who has reported in Shanghai in past years on artificial intelligence, surveillance, and beyond. Liza's new book, co-written with her colleague Josh Chin, Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control, is out now. It examines the social components of Chinese technology, from the politicians that are its deciders to those who are made vulnerable or who are making profits by its implementation. Liza, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: To start off, could you tell your listeners in your own words, about your recent writing and research and what they really should know about your uh, book co-written with your writing partner.
1: Sure. So I'm a senior correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. I'm currently based in Singapore, but that's kind of the situation for most foreign journalists covering China at this point. So I moved back from China after eight years at the end of 2018. I actually never thought I would still be writing on China uh, after moving to Singapore. But what happened you know, at the start of COVID was because of some strange twist in geopolitical relations, uh, the bulk of my team in China had been kicked out. And, and after that happened, we needed Mandarin speakers and people who understood the country and writing about the country from outside the country. So that Kind of how I found my way back into the China team. So, a lot of my work in recent years has been to look into the technology sector in China itself. And technology is a very broad sector. We look at everything from like internet companies to semiconductors and export controls. You know, and very often in my work, I also look at how businesses, foreign businesses, are handling like a changing dynamic in China particularly during the COVID years and under Xi Jinping.
0: Yeah, and uh, I was reading your book to prep for this, and you guys touch on the concept of social credit. Oftentimes, you know, people kind of portray it as this omniscient Skynet thing. So this leads into my question. What were sort of some of the pitfalls that... uh, you and your writing partner really sought to avoid going into this book?
1: So the genesis of this book was really a couple of stories that Josh uh, and I wrote for the journal in 2017. You know, I had been in China for seven years at that point, and there was this sense of the state really began beginning to encroach into people's lives. And we were struggling for a way to really pin down and tell that story in a way that was very relatable. And that's when I, I realized that, you know, I was a tech reporter at the time and I was following the money that was going into the venture capital space within China. And there was a lot of money flowing into one particular area of tech that I had never seen money go into before. It was going into artificial intelligence and it was going into one aspect of AI. It was, you know, computer vision. And that's when you know, I, it really piqued my interest. And I decided that I should approach one of these computer vision companies, see if I could go to the showroom, figure out what they're selling. Uh, why are they invest, you know, attracting so much investor interest? And that's when I picked a company that I think right now is pretty well known. It's called SenseTime. And Josh and I went to SenseTime showroom and we were completely blown away. Uh, when the moment you enter the showroom and, and, this is like 2017. This is way before a lot of people had written on facial recognition. You know, employees were scanning their face to enter the office instead of like swiping a badge. And once you enter the office, it's like wall to wall full of these plasma screens that was streaming like what was happening at the road intersection that we had just walked past.
0: And this was the showroom.
1: This is the showroom.
0: Okay. So it's, it's what the public can see relatively if they chose to browse the product that's
1: right, right. Uh, i mean it was within the corporate office itself but typically what they would do is you know the marketing staff would bring potential customers uh there to the showroom just to show them what sense times like ai algorithms and stuff could do yeah and that really kind of led us to going down this route of figuring out who was buying facial recognition in China. And it turned out like the Chinese police were using it and things really crystallized and became more of like a book when Josh headed down to Xinjiang uh, later in that year. So it was kind of, you know, towards the end of it, it was like fall getting into winter of 2017. And we had heard rumors that, you know, some, some, something really nasty and sinister was going on in Xinjiang. And he went there and he realized how many systems we had seen in that sense-time showroom were being deployed in Xinjiang. And it wasn't just like these facial recognition systems. There were all sorts of sensors as well. Uh, and that really kind of put things in context.
0: By the time they had showrooms for corporate clients and Josh was able to see the tech implemented in Xinjiang, this is already a certain stage. So really, it kind of began several years before that, yes? Uh,
1: Yes and no. I I would say the big trigger for any commercial use of computer vision and facial recognition really was at the turn of the decade, uh, the turn of the last decade. To, to be more exact, so probably about 2008, 2009, uh, researchers at Stanford realized that you could accelerate um, the training of algorithms with these super fast chips. And they're called GPUs. And prior to that, you know, AI had always been something that you saw in a PhD lab. It was rarely kind of taken out and used in a commercial setting. But once they discovered you could use GPUs to really quickly train AI to think like human brain. So it went from like machine learning to deep learning at that point. Um, and that really accelerated this whole rise of the computer vision industry globally, and particularly in China, where they found commercial uses for it really, really quickly. So I, I will definitely characterize it as, you know, it, it was up and coming. And then in 2016, Xinjiang actually had a new party chief take over. And this party chief, You know Chen Guo. he came from Tibet. He had some experience with, um, I would say, crushing dissidents um, in other parts of China. And once he got to Xinjiang, he realized that maybe there was a need for something that had not been tried before. And that's when they started to turn to digital surveillance in Xinjiang itself. So it was a combination of factors.
0: So at at the point of when Josh was doing reporting in in Xinjiang, your book discussed a family from there who eventually left the country. And of course, they've gone through the extensive monitoring of Turkic minorities there. What makes technology an integral part of this story? And then, you know, what hasn't really changed in terms of technology? Because discrimination against Uyghurs did not spring from the ground in the 2010s.
1: Yes, I would say that China always had this vision of trying to be a surveillance state. Whether it was an effective surveillance state in the past is something that's really still up for question. You know, there was a lot of human surveillance and people can still remember like the Tang'an quite clearly. Every Chinese citizen had in the past um, like a paper dossier where throughout your life, school, when you start working for a state-owned enterprise, both your teachers and your managers could add to that dangan. You know, and essentially, it was a way to keep tabs and keep track of of you. Um, so China has always wanted to be able to keep track of all of its citizens at once. But it's always, in, in the past, it's never been extremely successful. I think w- what technology brought to the table is this ability to really monitor people in real time, I would say when we were first starting the book in uh, 2018 and then you know finishing it up um, 2019 2020 at, at that point I would say the digital surveillance wasn't as apparent as it is now post COVID like I feel like the coronavirus has ushered in this whole new wave of digital surveillance in China that simply wasn't there before you know prior to COVID. You probably wouldn't be tracked in real time unless you were unless you fit in this category, one of those categories that the Ministry of Public security uh, tend to monitor you know and I believe there are seven categories which include you know dissidents, petitioners, um, fugitives on the run, convicted drug dealers. there are these seven categories of people that individuals that are monitored in real time by the Ministry of Public Security. Most ordinary people wouldn't. But post-COVID, you've really seen the Chinese government's digital surveillance ramp up to the stage that they're now monitoring mobile signals, right, of 1.4 billion of of their residents. Recently, China abolished what they call the Xingqian Ma, which is this travel code that you had to flash when you traveled between cities. The Xingqian Ma, the basis of that Xingqian Ma is having like a telecom company track your movements 24-7 to figure out if you were in a COVID hotspot or not. And if you were in a COVID hotspot, then your travel code would immediately turn red. And it would indicate what sort of health risk you had. So if your travel code turned red, you'd be forced to go to a quarantine facility. Um, And only people with green code. Even
0: if you weren't testing positive. Even
1: if you weren't testing positive. Because for the longest time, they had this really draconian um, measure. COVID zero. Exactly. Where even close contacts have to be hauled away.
0: So- Where would you say that this monitoring technology is at at this point? Like I said earlier, there's a lot of people that think, oh, you know, literally everything you do is tracked and they have perfect information. It's all centralized, blah, blah, blah. I'm not sure that's where it's at right now, especially since a lot of social credit and these types of monitoring technology vary by province to province, city to city. And you're still seeing a lot of trial runs. Uh, What are your thoughts on this?
1: So, I would kind of describe China's surveillance state as probably the most ambitious digital surveillance project out there right now. When we were doing our reporting, I remember there was a lot of times where people would say, "If you didn't do anything, you don't have to be worried." And I think it's quite a universal kind of feeling as well. It wasn't just like a you know Chinese, only Chinese felt that way because many people I know who are not Chinese also felt similar. Like, if you didn't do anything wrong, you don't have to be worried about surveillance. Uh, so what I think has happened over the last couple of years is you know, I, I've seen the Chinese surveillance state grow from, as I mentioned before, monitoring a, a certain group of people to right now being able to monitor everyone. And I've also started to see a lot more abuses of the surveillance state. When we first started writing the book in 2017, 2018, I would probably characterize Xinjiang as the true perfect surveillance state. Because over there, there are so many sensors and so many cameras and different ways of collecting your data, not just digital, right? They they would collect um, information often by hand as well. There were these population data forms that you had to fill up. If you were a Uyghur living in Xinjiang, telling them your habits when it came to alcohol, did you own a passport, how often you went to the mosque. So Xinjiang at that point was really the true surveillance state. Now I think you can apply that term to the entire the entirety of China, and we've really seen that play out in recent weeks with the protests that erupted after the Xinjiang fire.
0: Yeah, weirdly, their surveillance did not track the the problem of waiting two hours for a fire truck to go to a house. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so your so the technology has been more easy to sort of deploy. At a rapid rate in areas other than Xinjiang,
1: I would say COVID sparked the deployment of more invasive technology and across a wider scale than it, it was before. Um, and and the reason why I say like China really is now the perfect surveillance state is because a lot of the protesters that you know so so after. There was a fire in Urumqi in Xinjiang. Uh, that kind of sparked a lot of unhappiness on social media. And many people in major cities in China came out to protest. There are protests in Beijing. There are protests in Shanghai. You know, and these are big cities where the Communist Party really, really cares about. Uh, and the reason the protests lasted over the weekend, Uh, And many of the visuals and the videos have made it out to Twitter. And actually, even on WeChat itself, sometimes you still see some of these visuals kind of floating around. But the reason why the protests were nipped in the bud so quickly was because China deployed the use of its digital surveillance state to hunt down people who had taken part in these protests. So at the Journal, we spoke to people who, who had gone to the protests and they didn't turn their phone off. So police came to them on Monday, you know the, the the day following the weekend protest and basically came to issue them a warning telling them that we know you were there in the protests. Yeah, they, they were wearing a mask, but it didn't matter because police had been tracking like mobile phone signals. And through, the mobile phone signals realized that these people were at the protests. And you know, I've also heard of people who, have been supporting Peng Lifa, who was the the sole guy on on the Beijing Shitong Bridge, who unfurled these banners calling for C to be taken down. And there were people supporting him who had turned up, you know, just to protest in in protest in his favor. And they obviously took all sorts of necessary precautions. Turned off their mobile phone, you know. And even then, they got calls from the police asking why they were there and what they were doing. And it was because of surveillance camera footage. So we've really seen in China use the surveillance state across uh, many other cities and not just in Xinjiang, where it's at its probably at its most sinister and dystopian.
0: Yeah, because of the racialized component to monitoring in Xinjiang. What came to mind when you were talking about the A4 protests, the bridge protests, was what Chinese authorities constitute as a security threat can change. Like holding up a blank piece of paper, you know, ho- carrying it in your bag. It was a nothing until fairly recently. <laughs> and so how would you characterize that under uh, the current xi administration going into its third term the sort of cultural management and like really trying to throttle certain types of social media trends the traditional you know censorship of vulgar content over video social media sharing etc etc through scope creep through overreach or what have you by authorities
1: so so what I can say uh, uh, about Xi Jinping is over Xi Jinping's first two terms as Chinese president and party secretary, we've definitely seen a shrinking of any sort of space, uh, any civil society and any freedom to say uh, what what you want to say and, and any internet freedom uh, that had existed after Hu Jintao. I remember actually moving to China in 2010 and... You know i at that point when I moved it, the World Cup was happening, and I was trying to get on Facebook to post something you know i I watched the World Cup and I was like so excited and I want get wanted to get on facebook and I realized Facebook was blocked, and that was the same period where Google was very patchy and ultimately Google was blocked, you know and with Xi Jinping in 2012, 2013, as the Arab Spring took place in the Middle East, you saw many of these Western social media platforms get blocked as well. Um, you know, it's like the government has scrubbed so many things that would have made people unhappy. And, and in the run up to the 20th Party Congress recently in October as well, if you try to find out public opinion about Xi Jinping, his wife, anyone in the standing committee, most of the party secretaries of all these provinces and regions, you couldn't find a single thing that was not like a state media account or something that was negative. I think really under Xi Jinping you've you've seen this whole new era of censorship get ushered in mm-hmm.
0: And, of course, the Sichuan earthquakes, which had happened before she, The fi- 2015 Tianjin explosions, which uh, an apartment block basically just set on fire because the local officials, like, skipped code to, you know, build a bunch of houses close together. And, of course, you know, recently there was this big bus crash that uh, killed a bunch of people when transporting people to a quarantine facility in, I think, Guizhou. And so these types of mismanagement and people's inability to vent, do you think that sort of built like a pressure cooker environment uh, leading up to some of the A4 protests?
1: I think that, that definitely was part of it. But I think the A4 protests were more sparked by the disruptions that the zero COVID policy has brought to people over the last two two years. I mean, this year has been a rough year for the Chinese economy because whenever you lock down a city, that means supply chain disruptions. And in Shanghai, and I, I always have a soft spot for Shanghai because I was based there, You know, in April, people were told that you'd be shut down for three days, but a three-day shutdown eventually turned out to be a two-month shutdown. And people were desperate for food. You heard stories of like suicides and Chinese police would be flying these drones around, telling people to stay home. I mean, all that builds up. I think the inability to comment is definitely something, but the Chinese have a way of coping, right? They talk over dinner meals. It doesn't have to be online, but in between, you know, between close friends and family, people do express their opinion, and that has allowed people to vent. So I think it really, you know, the A4 protest was just spot by the broader Zero COVID policy and people really tiring of it.
0: Sort of pivoting to some another aspect of COVID zero. Let's talk about the Foxconn factory. One component of recent protests were uh, workers that were angry over their not being paid back wages or bonuses they were promised to assemble iPhones and other types of electronic devices for a factory owned by a Taiwanese man that ships it to the world.
1: So what China did with factories uh, for most of the whole zero COVID period was to force them to have a so-called closed loop. So these workers would be living, working, eating in the same small kind of confined area. Throughout, and this was to prevent any of the workers from going out, catching COVID, and spreading it like to his colleagues and other staff. the The Foxconn thing is super interesting because ever since China gave up that zero COVID policy earlier in December, we've seen a very abrupt U turn. So our reporting recently has shown that because China has abolish the zero COVID policy so quickly, and now they don't require testing anymore in factories, a lot of Foxconn workers are still turning up to work, even though they're showing symptoms of COVID. Some might have even tested positive for COVID, but they're still showing up for work. And the reason why they're showing up for work is very simple. Foxconn gives these bonuses if you clock a certain number of hours each month, and everybody wants that bonus. So without a COVID test now, you can't tell if someone's positive or not. So it's kind of interesting. It's gone like 180 degrees from we're squeezing out COVID in our factories to right now you could be working next to someone who is COVID positive and you wouldn't know because no one's testing and there's no requirement.
0: Yeah. And then going going back to a really small dorm. (laughs) Yes. And I know during some of the overseas chinese protests there were complaints against apple and, and how you know apple and global brands and tech firms have kind of profited off of this
1: yeah apple's it, it's it, it's probably one of the most successful foreign companies ever to operate in china and it's still getting away being able to operate so successfully in china what's been i think the true characteristic of business people in china uh, over the last couple of years is just facing a ton of uncertainty uncertainty over what new policies might come out when the next shutdown would be you know everyone's worried about like what's next and very often there's very little indication because xi jinping as a leader isn't a very consultative person, so there, you know, the feedback mechanism that used to exist between companies and governments, that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, there's a lot of opacity in decision making, and often the decisions are made and then just rolled out.
0: It's more like she tells them stuff rather than has a <laughs> discussion, right?
1: Yeah, and the concentration of power in one person in the central government also means that local governments have to kind of follow what the central government wants. So in a way, like local governments are neutered in the flexibility to offer any sort of support for foreign companies. Uh so so uncertainty has been the name of the game. With Apple I I definitely see that they've been gradually trying to shift. So Apple's been trying to shift some production to places like Vietnam or and they're also trying But they to can't make-
0: replace it entirely, right?
1: Yes, but the idea is not to replace it entirely. To diversify. Exactly. Apple sells a ton of phones in China itself. And honestly, since Huawei was put on like, the foreign direct product rule, it's been very hard for them to make like, high-end phones that can rival Apple. So you've seen Huawei really lose a lot of market share in China and Apple benefit from that. So the plan is not to completely move away from China. The plan is to diversify so that if something happens in the geopolitical relationship between the US and China and they have to have an alternative, they would have. In the past, a lot of Apple's eggs were put in one basket and that was like with Foxconn and in China. Now you're definitely seeing that they're diversifying not only in locations. So they're making an iPhone in India. They're making like earbuds and, and other like Apple accessories in Vietnam. You're also seeing them diversified by company. So instead of putting all their orders with Foxconn, they're going to smaller manufacturers that have, you know, proved also really efficient in the past, might still be Chinese or even Taiwanese, and they're putting more orders there. So it's essentially kind of, they're spreading out their risk.
0: Yeah, but unfortunately for people that are making the iPhones, it's still a very, very difficult sort of lived reality. And on the note of, you know, looking at working with COVID, I think the city of Chongqing, which is one of China's densest cities, was like, oh, if you have light symptoms, you can still go to work. And I'm just like, oh, I feel so bad for the hospitals right now because they're going to get slammed. Yeah. So just to sort of round out this discussion, I want to ask a little bit of about the process of journalism. As you mentioned at the start of the podcast, it's been harder to do field work. Could you discuss how, you know, if you could, how this has changed your working realities and how you've managed to really stay updated on things happening in China?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, just covering China from outside of China, it's made me a much better reporter that looks at open source material, for example. Um, I I remember there's one chapter in our book, and, and we did the story for the Wall Street Journal as well. This was uh, 2019. We looked into the supply chain and which U.S. customers and U.S. tech companies have been supplying the Chinese surveillance state. And in order to do that, you know, we poured through procurement documents at that point, you know procurement documents weren't as widely used as it is now as an open source uh, kind of research tool. but you know that was one of the things that I had to do because we weren't really physically in the on the ground as often and then talking to people. At, at that point, I had made several trips to China even though I had left, but it, you know, you're not in that environment on a daily basis. So you can't just say, I'm going to swing down to Hangzhou and I'm going to meet this person and talk about it. They're it's probably
0: not-, not letting that many foreign reporters in uh, facial recognition showrooms anymore. <laughs> yes. Fortunately, though, a lot of them have public websites.
1: <laughs> Even with the public websites, you'd be shocked at the amount of like, data about China that's disappearing. Yeah. Because there are so many Chinese websites that can't be accessed from overseas. It- it's made me a better researcher in terms of looking at open source material for story ideas. And it's also forced me to talk to a lot of people more. Uh, so I use Zoom and you know, I use calls a lot. I, I try not to use WeChat. I felt that the censorship and the surveillance on WeChat is a lot worse than a regular telephone call in China, for example. And they have good voice recognition algorithms. So if you do tend to say sudden sensitive terms, oh. too many sensitive terms in too short a time, then the WeChat tends to cut your call.
0: Oh my gosh. Okay.
1: <laughs> and and it's, it's been getting increasingly more difficult because right now China rolled out this anti-fraud app probably late 2020 and then started really aggressively pushing it in 2021, 反诈骗, APP. Uh, it, it's an app by the ministry of public security, basically that helps you track if you're getting a scam call on your phone. And right now, so many overseas numbers are listed as scam calls on people's phones. So that means that I can't even use an overseas number to call someone if I wanted to. So you have to use a Chinese mobile. So uh, there there's so many things that i've learned from reporting outside of china
0: yeah that's uh it sounds like it's it's growing more challenging i was i was really curious about wechat cuz like well they already have all your like personal data in little nice little packages so it it really sort of i guess reconfigures what kind of work that journalists and researchers like me are you know going to be doing for the future so to, to wind down uh, our, our podcast for, for new voices, we usually ask two sort of more lighthearted questions. So uh, my first question is um, what's a, are there any, so outside of, you know, working, what kind of, uh, are there any TV shows, books, films and such that you found really interesting lately?
1: I mean, I've been reading quite a few good books recently, but one book that really stood out to me and, and it's a kid's book. Uh, it was something I stumbled upon for my, my, for my four year old. It's called The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. It's an oldie and an evergreen, but it's such a goodie. I mean, he loves it and I love to read it to him. It's about a tree with unconditional love for a little boy and like the story of sacrifice and what happiness means. So I, I know it's not a very intellectual recommendation. But
0: <laughs> you will find like that. This is a pro Shell Silverstein uh, <laughs> podcast episode. I've read his poems for children uh, when I was a child. And despite the fact that they were very family friendly, they also really got into some, some deep topics. So um, in terms of what I'm reading lately, I am working through a novella series called uh, <laughs> Rouge Street by Shuang uh, wow. Tao, uh <laughs> translated by Je- Jeremy Tiang. It's a series of fiction set in Shenyang, which is like this northern, very, very cold and winter uh, city. And it's this got this kind of Cold War vibe, but also there's a bit of, you know, a little bit of sci fi aspect to them. So, yeah, the collection is Rouge Street. I'm really, really excited to dig into it with uh, probably a hot cup of tea or coffee because I get cold easily. <laughs> um, so, our last, last question is, uh, you know, something that we've been asking, I think, since the start of COVID, but it's because COVID is still going on and also we're all still stressed. Uh, What is a self-care activity that you've been trying to do lately?
1: So I'm the type of person that needs like some sort of exercise or activity to get me kind of either winding down or started in a day. So for me, my self-care is not a manicure or a good massage. It's just going for a run. Uh, It helps me think, you know, when I'm running, because there's so much to there's so much happening in the China news cycle that you don't have even 15 minutes to really sit down and kind of digest what's happening. So running does give me the, the the chance to space out.
0: Yeah, like taking that kind of time to really just tune out things is is very helpful. For me, I am a huge, huge fountain pen nerd. I collect them. I love fountain pen inks. And so for me, uh, my self-care activity has been learning how to sketch and also continuing to journal. Recently I had a work trip to Canada and while I was, you know, walking around the city, going to museums, I would take out my pen and my little notebook and like do some sketching. Being able to make something has really been something that's making me very happy lately.
1: I would love to see
0: some of those sketches. You should post some of them. Okay. Yeah, but um, I think I, I saw this painting in Montreal that, that was by Cree and Irish artist who was like drawing a bunch of settlers, like killing beavers in, in Canada. And I just thought it was so funny. I took some of the beavers and I sketched them down. I'll, I'll post them and link them in the show notes for anybody knows. <laughs> and on that note of unexpected beaver violence thank you Liza for being with us today for a very exciting and enlightening conversation her book co-written with Josh Chin uh, surveillance state is out now at anywhere you buy or borrow books we love libraries You've been listening to the New Voices podcast with me, Ray Zong. This episode was produced by Saga Ringmar and edited by Megan Cattell. Intro and outro music is by the very talented April Zoo. Follow us on Twitter at New Voices and on Instagram at New Voices underscore network. And you can support our activities via Patreon. Patrons are invited to play an active role in our community and can access... Uh, bonus content in some of our episodes more information is available on patreon.com slash new voices so signing off from washington dc my name is Zong,
1: and i'm lisa in singapore
0: okay